Today I want to share with you that this whole month we've gone through a series that I've called Go Big. And uh, uh, just a quick recap of the month. We started off talking about how we can go big with our time spent with God and for God. How we can go big with our talents. How we can go big with our treasure. I talked about money last week. And this week we're going to talk about our family. Things we can do in order to go big for our family. I thought it was fitting that on Family Sunday we would talk about family. So heads up, I'm going to talk to the men, the women, and the young people. Where's my young people? I wrote this whole sermon for him. <laughs> he was right there. All right, he'll be in. Uh, man, all the stuff you want to say to your kid, you get to do that on a Sunday when you preach about family, when you're the preacher. Anyway, what was God's original design for the family? You see, when we think about family, unfortunately, a lot of folks don't really have good memories of growing up. A lot of people that I talk to, um, are, are, they, have, they have these these odd memories. And the problem with odd memories growing up is we take our parents, fathers and mothers, and we, we look at God as, as if he's those people or if, if that's the reflection that they've given. And we think, wow, if, if God's no better than, than this, even if you have great parents, you know, it's like, well, we can't compare that way. And so God has given us information. Uh, and, and even in scripture, there are a lot of tragic stories about family um, and about different families. That, that, and we see that sin has a devastating effect on families when we don't allow God to be a focal point of our family. Adam and Eve sinned. And, and how did Adam respond to his sin when he was confronted by God? What did he do? Do you, do you remember in that story? Yeah, he blamed, he blamed his wife. The woman you gave me said, try this. So I did. It was her fault. What did Eve do? She blamed the serpent. They, neither one of them said, you know what, we, we did that wrong. They, they, so you see where, where that, that can take place. They, Adam and Eve parented two male children. One of those sons killed the other one. Abraham, God's chosen man, ended up with two wives, essentially, breaking God's design for marriage and family. And he eventually kicked one of them out and her child and, and kicked him out of the house and left him in the desert. Jacob married several wives. He got that from his grandfather. His 12 sons eventually sold their younger brother into slavery. King David also had many wives. You see, when we consider the biblical narrative, we see many family relationships that were broken by sin. And today's story is no different. Sin still destroys family relationships. In fact, today we even see the effects of sin in the redefinition of marriage. So what is God's design for family? How can we go big for God with our families? The question we need to ask ourselves is, are the relationships that I have with my family a proper reflection of my relationship with Christ? You see, often when a person comes to Christ, there isn't a lot of change. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of zeal. But there's not necessarily a lot of change. But in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that our relationship with Christ should affect everything. And so... I'm going to read through Colossians chapter 3, the whole chapter, and then we're going to talk about a few things out of this chapter. And it starts off this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye servant, service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So he begins this chapter talking about the believer's new position in Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When a person is saved, they are now spiritually identified with Christ. You see, through baptism, we we die with Christ. We rise from the dead with Christ. And we will one day be with Christ in in the heavenly places. This thought should not simply be a mental note or a point of theology for a Christian. It should, be, it should radically change our life. It should radically change the way we do things, the way we talk, the way we dress, the way we act. It should change the way we think. Paul says we should think on things that are above and not on things of this earth. It goes back to when I talked about talents and treasure. Where your, where your treasure is, there, or where your heart is, there your treasure is. You see, this position in Christ, it should affect every thought we have. Paul tells the church, is to change our clothing. Take off the old clothing of sin and put on the new clothing of righteousness in Christ. Put on love, put on compassion, kindness, forgiveness, bearing with one another. That, that means we don't just get to say, bless their heart and move on. It means we, we're going to live life together. In Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17, he continues to describe the priorities of our heavenly position. He says, the outer garments of every believer, the Christian life must 
let the peace of Christ, or the Christian must let the peace of Christ rule in their life. It goes back to being slow to anger, being quick to listen. We should make every decision based on the reality of whether the decision we make is going to disrupt our peace with Christ and his body. We must let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Let's go big in the word. It goes back to the very first message about go big with your time spent with God. It should be our desire to know the word of God more daily, to allow it to overflow in our lives. Only then can we truly go big with our time, our talent, our treasures, and especially our family. I say all of this to say, today as we look at the responsibilities of family members based on God's original design and what his word says, we're going to see some things. And some of these are things you know. Some of these are things that you know and don't like to hear. Some of these are things that you know, but you've forgotten. And I want to remind you of them. And we're going to start off with the wife's role. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The wife needs to submit to her husband because this is fitting. It's appropriate for her position in Christ. Now, I understand that our, that word submission often carries a nasty overtone, especially in our society and our culture today. But it has to be noted, submission does not mean inferiority. I want you to understand that. Submit is actually a military word. We're all my military people. It's okay. Be proud. Yeah. Submit. That it simply means to arrange under rank. That's what it means. Arrange under rank. All right. It's a, it's a military word. It means to come under. A sergeant is not inferior to a captain. They're equal. But how, to have order in the military, authority has to exist in the relationship or chaos will ensue. That's that whole too many chiefs, not enough Indians thing. If everybody's in charge, then nobody knows what's going on. And so you have to have that submission even amongst equals. In the same way, when God made the husband and wife relationship, he made it with order so that it would function properly. Submission does not imply that the wife is less than the husband. That's what our culture has said. But that's not what this means in Christian submission. It doesn't mean the wife is less than the husband, especially when Christ is the foundation of marriage. You see, because in Christ, there's equality. All right, hear this. Our equality and our unity in Christ doesn't remove our roles, though. And what Paul teaches here doesn't change the fact that a slave was still supposed to submit and obey his master. That was his role. Even though he was equal with the master standing before God, the slave still has to submit to his master. Some people take Galatians 3.28 and pit Paul's teachings against each other. They say a woman no longer needs to submit to their husbands or that women don't need to practice submission in church because we're all one in Christ. But that damages the teachings of Scripture. They're meant to fit together, not contradict one another. So when God said, let us, all right, when he was creating man and woman, when he, he said, let us create man in our own image, there's reference here to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all one. And when God made man in his image, he made two people who would become one flesh in marriage, male and female together as one, are a reflection of the Trinity. You see, in, in God's plurality and his concurrent unity, three in one, this crucial aspect of, of who he is, his, his deity, his authority, his submission in the Godhead, which is reflected in the union of marriage. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In this passage, we see that God is the head of Christ. Even though God the Father and God the Son are co-equal, the Son submits to the Father. He obeys the Father's will. In a similar vein, when God made male and female in His image, He put authority and submission into that relationship. And so the head of the wife is man. The marriage relationship is a reflection 
of the Trinitarian relationship, if you will, this unity and authority in marriage is a reflection of how mankind is made in the image of God. With that said, we still have the sin problem. Sin terribly distorts the image of God in man. We don't reflect God as we should because sin has created a rebellion against God's order. Romans 8, 7 says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You see, man naturally doesn't want to obey God's law. Sin has corrupted us and and has corrupted the nature of our relationships. We see these effects specifically in marriage right after the fall. Submission and authority happen in the context of God's love for the Son. In fact, in 1 John 4, 8, God is defined simply as love. He says, God is love. In the context of this loving relationship, Jesus, the Son, submits. And in the same way as a husband, I'm not called to demand that Mitzi submits to me. I'm not, but I am called to love her, to care for her, to encourage her, uh, and to, to start her car on cold days, um, and to encourage her to grow in God, encourage her, and, and to serve her. That's what I'm called to do. Mitzi is to submit to me willingly. I can't force it. That, that would be a marring of God's relationship. You see, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, it it opened up a brokenness to marriage. It opened up a brokenness to submission in the context of having a loving relationship because they they destroyed a lot of things in that moment. And as a result, we see the brokenness in the majority of marriages. Over 50% of marriages end in divorce. That statistic changed a while back. It used to to be a different statistic for Christians and non-Christians, and now it's just across the board, 50% of marriages end in divorce. The wife tries to control the husband. The husband tries to rule and dominate the wife. In fact, marriage is becoming redefined totally as no longer simply being between one man and one woman. You see, the image of God has been totally distorted and the consequences are disorder in our marriages, in our families, in our society. Do you see why we need to go big for God with our family? Because Satan knows everything I just shared with you. If the home is broken, then you can be sure that the education system is broken. If the home is broken, the government is broken. Folks, the home is the foundation of society. That's what God intended with a home. God started his building of a community on the earth with marriage. And when marriage doesn't work correctly, everything else becomes distorted. That being said, what's the husband's responsibility to his wife? Paul says to the husbands that they should love their wives. Now, it should be known that in the ancient context, this was a very radical thought. It's a very radical statement. It pushed against the norms of society of the people that he was talking to. William Barclay describes Jewish and Greek ancient context in this, um, in his commentary on Colossians. Listen to what he says about, about Jewish and Greek law. Under these laws, a woman was a thing, the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods. She had no legal rights whatsoever. In Jewish and Greek culture, the women had little to no rights she, or the woman had little to no rights. She was a piece of property meant to serve the husband. Therefore, Paul's teachings ran against the sway of Jewish and Greek society. Paul is saying, husband, he's commanding. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. That's a radical concept. Ephesians describes what the husband's role should look like, what his love should look like. In Ephesians chapter 5, and I always share this when I'm doing premarital counseling. Everybody, uh, it starts off right here. Men, this is us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. There are several characteristics of the husband's love that's seen in this passage. And listen, first off, men, our love for our wives needs to be realistic. It needs to be a realistic love, not, not tainted by Hollywood or, or internet or whatever. Our love must be realistic. It, there should be no unrealistic ideas about the woman you're marrying or have married. You see, Christ loved the church and he died for the church while we were still enemies of God. Romans 5.8, Christ knew the church was sinful and disobedient and still died for her. He still gave his life for her while knowing her faults. That's realistic love. Having a realistic love is important for both husband and wife because if you don't have it, you're going to become very disillusioned in your marriage. I have no doubt that the reason the highest number of divorces happen in the first year of marriage is because most love is unrealistic. I know that's true because when I do premarital counseling and I say, hey, why do you want to get married? And almost always the first thing that comes out of their mouth, I love her. She's so amazing. Why do you want to get married? Because he's so handsome. I love him. What are you going to do when you have a problem? We're not going to have problems. We talk about everything. We just talk it all out. We don't argue. We, we've been dating for a whole year. We haven't had one argument. I love her. That's what they say. We have unre- the, that's just base layer unrealistic goals of marriage. <laughs> a husband's love must be sacrificial. You're to love her as Christ loved the church and be willing to die for her. I really believe it's much easier to submit to someone than to actually die for someone. See, everybody wants to talk about that the wives get the short end of that stick because it's like, wives submit. Oh, I don't have to submit. He's telling us to die for y'all. Are you not seeing that? I'll submit all day long. I would die for you, (laughs) just so you know. But it's a lot harder to die for someone. It's easy to submit. You see this love that a husband is supposed to embody? It's impossible without the grace of God. The whole family relationship, successful, is impossible without God. To love sacrificially means that the husband needs to at times give up other things to serve and please his wife. Men, you will need to make sacrifices for your wife. You will need to sacrifice your time, your entertainment, your friendships, sometimes even your career in order to love your wife. The husband's love needs to be purposeful. Christ's love makes the church holy by cleansing her with the word. His purpose is to make her the perfect bride. And similarly for us husbands, we must love our wives and our families by seeing to it that they're involved in a Bible-preaching church. We encourage them to get involved in, in small groups and youth group and ministries and other areas where they can grow and serve. That's what this whole series has been about. We need to encourage them to use their gifts and their talents and their treasures for the glory of God. Men, your love for your wife, it must be personal. It must be personal. Love her as you love your own body. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't love my body. That's not true. You wake up every morning, you feed your body. You wake up every morning, you, you brush your teeth, you comb your hair. Well, some of you comb your hair. Um, 
you, you, uh, you get dressed, you go to the gym, you work out, you do these things for yourself, for your physical body. Love your wife the way you love your own body. Every day we maintain our bodies. Every day we, we do those things. We maintain our bodies. We maintain our spiritual bodies with, with being, spending time in God's word. But often, sadly enough, we go days and days without maintaining our marriages. You see, love has to be personal. We must love our wives like our own bodies and daily we need to take time to cultivate a happy home. Scripture says that love is patient in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. So men, patiently love your wife, patiently love your family, do your part and trust God to do his part. How can Christians have a happy marriage in the culture and the world that we live in? We need to choose to build our marriage around the biblical principles and the foundation of God's love. The relationship must be built on submission and love. Folks, the reality is marriages are broken. Even good marriages are fractured. We need to come back to the creator of marriage so that they can be fixed. We need to submit to his will and to his perfect plan for marriage. I want to tell you something. If you're having some issues with marriage and you're wondering what's going to help fix my marriage, what's going to help fix this relationship, if you look at it as a pyramid and God's at the top of the pyramid and the husband's on one corner and the wife's on the other, if you focus on growing closer to God, as you grow closer to God, you will grow closer to each other as a couple. It works. And now that I've talked about husbands and I've talked about wives, I get to talk about children. All right, children, where's my younglings? If you're 18 and under, the next six minutes is for you. All right, get your phones out so you can take notes. Yeah. Children, the responsibility you have to your parents, your family responsibility comes from Colossians 3, verse 20. Obey your parents. Look up here. Say this word with me. Kids, obey your parents in everything. Everything. For this pleases the Lord. Cleaning your room pleases the Lord. Taking out the trash pleases the Lord. Obey your parents in everything. Getting good grades pleases the Lord. Doing your homework pleases the Lord. Washing your father's car pleases the Lord. Can I get an amen on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing in the Lord. Listen, when Scripture talks about the pagan world that denies God, it starts with disobedience to parents. It characterizes the whole thing. It should be noted, listen, if a child, if you don't obey your parents in everything and recognize your parents' authority, then you're not going to recognize other authorities. It's, it's implied in Colossians 3.22 when, when he talks about the slaves receiving the same command. Here it is. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. If a person never learns obedience in everything that happens in the home, they're going to struggle with disobedience for the rest of their life. Studies show that a child who is disobedient to his parents will disobey every authority. He will disobey his teachers. He will disobey his boss. He will disobey the law. He will disobey God, who is the ultimate authority. The importance of obedience to parents is seen by it being in the Ten Commandments. This is great. I, I, in Sunday school today, we we're teaching the Ten Commandments, and we got to this command. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land. You see, in the Old Covenant, 
God promised that children would live long on earth if they honored their parents. This is very true as a natural consequence of obedience. If you're obedient to your parents, you're going to live long. When the child and parent relationship breaks down, it's detrimental to the rest of society. You see, a child's obedience to his parents should be enforced. When we look at our world today, it's marked by a lack of authority. Children no longer obey their parents. Students have no respect for teachers. Employees dishonor their employers. And and ultimately, more and more people are denying the authority of God every day. It seems that a lot of that stems from youth beginning to rebel against God's authority. But that comes back to that as parents, we didn't fully do our job in the first place. It's for this reason that Satan's always desperately trying to affect the way that our youth think. He attacks our youth. He attacks our children, our young adult children even, through music and movies and commercials. He uses schools and college campuses. Parents and grandparents, that's why the training of our youth is very important. It's why it should be very strategic. That's why we need to go big with our family. You see, wise parents, wise grandparents will make sure that their children are properly trained in the Lord at home in the way of how they spend their time, how they spend their talents, their treasures, and their family. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I want to tell you this, as we've gone through this series on going big with your time, your talents, your treasures, and now your family, to present all those things before God in a way that honors Him. If it's something you've been thinking about as a, as a parent, um, and, and maybe you're not sure what your next step is, but if you'd like to bring your family forward today just to declare that from this point on, I'm going to go big for God with my time, my talent, my treasure, teaching my family. That would be an amazing response to God's word this morning. Uh, it'd be an amazing response to this whole series. Our elders are here. If, if you want, they would love to go and pray with you and your family. But as we come to our response time right now, consider how you interact in your family as a husband, as a wife, as a child. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You're, all of us fall into one of those categories husband, wife, or child, and consider how you act. Consider what the fruit is of your relationship with your family because of your relationship with Christ. Consider those things as we stand and sing our response song this morning, and whatever your response is to God's word, will you respond accordingly?